This morning's reading comes from Thessalonians 1, 4 and 5. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labour pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Good morning, everybody. My name's Cam. Um, most of you know that, but uh, there's some new faces around here. I uh, haven't been up here preaching for a while, um, and I want to start with some Bible trivia. So, a man claims to be God, yet he walks the earth as a human. He announces a kingdom, and he offers peace to all. Who is it? Jesus, of course, except there's actually another figure lurking in the background of the New Testament in the world that Jesus was in and that Paul the Apostle and these early churches were part of, another man who claims to be God and claims to lead a kingdom of peace. That would be Caesar, the Roman emperor. So there's a bit of a competition going on and the stakes are high. Paul was run out of Thessalonica back in Acts 17. And there it says in verse 7, he was run out because he was defying to Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, 
one called Jesus. And that's just the beginning of the afflictions which we then hear about that the church in Thessalonica is suffering in chapters two and three of this letter. Who is the real king? How is that question going to finally be resolved? Indeed, who's in charge has more impact on day-to-day life for us now, I think, than it has done for generations. Next year, the next chapter of the Trump saga kicks into full swing. Some of you follow this stuff closely, and others think it's a world away. But the way the cultural wind blows over there tends to make its way over here. No one really has any good answers to the rise of these populist demagogues anywhere in the whole democratic world. And actually, whoever wins next year, it's going to continue to fuel massive social upheaval, spreading far beyond North America. The influence of some groups will be amplified, and the influence of others will be repressed, sometimes violently. Most people, of course, just want to get on with their lives. They will feel the pressure to say the right things, or at least not say the wrong things. They will feel the pressure to signal their sympathies for whoever's dominating in any shared spaces, or at least not incite their fury. Those are very much the sorts of forces at work in Thessalonica. Only the contestants are Caesar and Jesus, Christians and everybody else. Who is the real king? It's all very live for this church, as Paul writes to them. And along the way in this letter, there's a brute fact that grounds Paul's teaching and encouragement and gives him total confidence. He's hinted at it a few times along the way. How is this contest going to be resolved? Not with a populist election, but with the triumphant return of the king, the only true king, Jesus, the Messiah. So, Paul now turns to the second coming. He wants to discuss something the Thessalonian church don't know about this event, and he wants to discuss something that they do know. So that's how we'll look at it. So the thing they don't know, the new teaching for the church in Thessalonica is about death and grief. Verse 13, Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who are asleep so that they do not grieve without hope. And sleep here is a way that they sometimes talk about believers who have died. Um, for those who were very observant, you'll notice there's also a sleep being discussed in chapter five when we move over there. Same word for us in English, actually different words in the Greek. So those ideas aren't connected, even while the whole overall passage is quite connected. So uh, the Thessalonians, they wouldn't have been distracted by this as we sometimes are. They have more words for things sometimes. Okay, now, you might wonder, what is the issue here that they're uninformed about? Or to put it another way, how is it that everyone else grieves? Are there different ways to grieve? Here in Adelaide, in the 21st century, what sorts of sentiments shape people's views about death and the afterlife, do you think? What have you heard at funerals? Perhaps especially non-Christian ones. I'm thinking of rest in peace or of they're in a better place now, or we'll see them again on the other side. Whether the people who say these things all the time believe them 
or how real or deep those beliefs really are, that's not important here. What's important is that these are the sentiments that shape our culture's views on death and the afterlife. And these ideas are completely Christian, a product of a couple thousand years of a culture shaped by the Bible. And the sentiments, are they're basically hopeful, aren't they? Even if the sentiments are hollow in the mouths of some people, these are ideas about there being something more to come after this life, and, and whatever that is, it's good. But how do the Thessalonians in the first century see death? Well, ancient views on death are actually a bit of a rabbit hole, so allow me to massively oversimplify the issue with a couple of representations. So the first one, I've got a picture here of uh, Theocritus, a Greek poet in the world of Alexander the Great, and he said, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. So that's uh, reflective of much of the thought in the Greek world at the time. With the exception of mighty heroes, the afterlife for the Greeks was an abyss, a black hole. Death cut you off. It was a point of no return. Next up we have Catullus, a Roman poet in the world of Julius Caesar. And he said, the sun can set and rise again, but once our brief, life, our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. That's not all bad, I, I suppose. I mean, some of us quite enjoy our sleep, but it's just kind of nothing. So that's a snapshot of how a thoroughly Greco-Roman city like Thessalonica may see these things. And where do such sentiments leave you if someone you love, love really dearly, is taken from you? Inconsolable grief. A hole in your heart that can never be filled. And very probably a deep anxiety about your own fate. Paul has two things to say about this. So the first, verse 14, Jesus rose from the dead. And those who died as believers, who have fallen asleep, they will rise also. They do not face oblivion. Death, the final enemy for so long, has been overcome. It is swallowed up in Christ's victory. So do not grieve, Paul says, as others do who have no hope. The second thing Paul says, verse 15, introduces the parousia, the coming of the Lord, the second coming. And there's some interesting ideas in recent times around what all of this means. But here, it's normally a way of talking about a conquering ruler or general returning in glory to the adoration of their people. This can be a little hard for us to appreciate, I think. Um, it's not a very common idea for, for the modern West or for Australia. Um, yeah, hard for us to appreciate, but maybe some of you saw what it was like for the Springboks, the South African national rugby team, when they returned to South Africa after winning the Rugby World Cup a couple months ago. Our hero worship, worship of our athletes here in Australia, it's got nothing on this. So, trigger warning for any Kiwis in the room, um, the following images may be quite distressing. Um, <laughs> first up, what have we got, Duncan? <laughs> 
This is uh, OR Tambo International Airport in Johannesburg when the Springboks are arriving home. I've traveled through this airport many times in peak hour. It doesn't look like that. This is swarming and this spills out the doors in every direction to welcome the team home. The public transport companies made all transport to and from the airport free that day so everybody could come and welcome the Springboks home. Uh, next one, what have we got? <laughs> a four-day victory lap around the country. I don't know how, quick, how quickly they were able to get this customised bus ready when they flew just from France back to Johannesburg. Four-day victory lap around the whole country. This is them being greeted in Soweto. Uh, and it was like this everywhere, everywhere. Just adoration, people pouring out onto the streets to worship the Springboks. The president, Ramaphosa, declared a public holiday in their name. And uh, yeah, for one of the most fractured nations on earth, they were completely unified across every boundary. Um, next, just the last one I've got here. Um, this is Sia Kalisi, the captain of the Springboks. It's not just about the game on the field. Our country goes through such a lot. We are the hope they have. Vuvuzela stocks were probably running pretty low at the time. Okay, thanks, Duncan. So that's exactly the picture. That's what it's like for a victorious son of Rome in the first century coming home. His victory means glory for the people. The strength of his kingdom means peace and security for all. And the capital of Alexander's Macedon and one of Rome's mightiest city-states, Thessalonica, was well acquainted with this sort of pageantry. As with South Africa, the spirit of the whole nation is elated. It's ecstatic. This is a time of celebration, festivities, fanfare, time of joy and feasting and plenty and revelry. No proud Roman citizen would want to miss this. And so, Paul represents the return of Jesus Christ in exactly this way. This is agitation. It's subversive. This is a dangerous thing to be saying and to be spreading around in a city like this. But it's true, and it is so necessary for this young, persecuted church to hear. Who is the real king? Well, this Jesus, verse 16, he won't return from a foreign nation. He will descend from the clouds of heaven. He will be flanked by angels, heralded not by Vuvuzelas, but the trumpet call of God. And proud citizens of heaven long for that day. They know that even the greatest of the imperial processions are just cheap parodies of the real king. At the same time, this amplifies their grief. They fear that the ones they have lost will not share in the glory. There's a special heartache, isn't there, when we find ourselves in some wonderful moment only to be struck suddenly by the absence of someone we thought we'd be sharing that moment with. That's the Thessalonians' anguish here. And all the more because certainly some number of those who have fallen asleep in Christ were executed in the name of Caesar as rebels by one of these imposter kings. But Paul says, do not grieve. 
because they will not miss out on anything. When the richest victory parade the world has ever seen finally arrives, verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. And then all who remain at that time, verse 17, they will come out to join them. And so our Christian hope includes the hope of reunion. We will meet our glorious king and welcome him home. And we will also be reunited with those we love who died in Christ. We will share together in all the goodness and glory, all the celebration and cheer. And that is only the beginning of the life to come. I think these sorts of things are really good for us to hear. Though, unlike the church in Thessalonica, my experience is that godly churches in our day aren't ignorant about the fact, the fate of their dead. Uh, all of the Christian funerals I've been to, including at this church, they are dripping with hope. And they are markedly different to the non-Christian funerals that I've been to. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. But is there perhaps something that we are ignorant about concerning Jesus' return? I think there is. And something the church in Thessalonica had no issue with. And so I know many Christians and they, who, who love Jesus, they profess that they long for his return. They mean that, they really do. But their hope here is laced with apprehension. Sometimes it's because they don't really think they're going to enjoy the never-ending church service in the clouds. Fair enough. That may not be the particular caricature that you, know, you harbour. For many others, though, it's just that all you really know about that day that's to come is that it will be good. Good. In a generic sort of sense. The, the trouble is, we aren't generic creatures. And a vague and generic hope isn't really one that can sustain us. We can't cling to it, relate to it. We don't really look forward to it. We say we do, and we mean it, but do you know what I mean? We don't really feel that. I can't correct all of that this morning, but this passage does speak to it a little bit, so I want to finish this section by just making some observations about that for us. In verse 16, Jesus descends from heaven, and in verse 17, we meet him in the clouds in the air. And this is the part where the traditional caricatures of heaven in the clouds of the angels comes from. What's clear, though, to an ancient Greco-Roman person is that the scene doesn't end there in the clouds. It says we will be with him forever. It doesn't say we'll be in the clouds forever. What, what this church would have known when they read this and hear this is that when these festive welcoming parties go out to greet their rulers, it was to accompany them back into the city and to welcome them home. And that's the idea here too for Paul. The redeemed people of God, whether living or dead, they welcome Jesus back. Back to where? Well, to the place where he will rule eternally, the earth. Jesus is human after all, and when he returns, he is actually in some senses coming home. Verse 17, we will be with the Lord forever but not in the clouds. The very final chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, says that the dwelling place of God will come down out of heaven to be on earth, among his people. 
our Christian hope is not to be whisked off to some amorphous, blissful tranquility with harps, perhaps. <laughs> our hope is that Jesus will come and transform life as we know it. All the dynamism and creativity and endeavor of life at its best without the corruption of sin, without the malice of the devil, without the injustice of the world. We will be unified completely in him, devoted to him. He will delight in us and in all that we do. We will do it with him and for him. He will delight in it all, in its thorough, deep-going humanness, as he always intended, as he made us for, and as he brought to fulfillment in his son, who became man, who is the perfect human. That's our hope. That's our hope. So, we're talking about the second coming of Christ. We've covered the thing that Paul thought that they needed to learn about, something they were uninformed about. Now, chapter five, something that they know really, really well, that he has total confidence in them. This section is about, verse one, times and dates. So, what's your relationship with your diary like? Mine is a little bit fraught, fraught to non-existent. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm eyeing off some of the people who have to deal with me sometimes in organizational capacities, like Duncan and my wife and Chris and... I'm sorry, guys. <laughs> I actually have this thing, it's called time blindness. It's not a joke. It's the absence of a subjective experience of the passage of time. I just don't get it like most people. There's no feeling of, of it. But trust me, my subjective experience of the consequences of my struggles with time, that completely intact. <laughs> Unfortun unfortunately. Christians in Thessalonica... They're not time-blind. Verse one, now about the times and dates of the day of the Lord, we do not need to write to you, Paul says, for you know very well. Okay, great. Well, when is it? So we can all mark it in our calendars. That'd be good, wouldn't it? You know, oh, uh, what have I got coming up? Mum's 60th in three weeks' time and project deadline next month and oh, then Jesus returns. Perfect. <laughs> that'd be handy for some of us, I think, but... um. That's not quite what, what we get here. And it's not quite what Paul is saying the Thessalonians have. What the church in Thessalonica knows, verse two, is that the day will certainly come. It will certainly come. If you're a Christian here this morning, you no doubt agree that's what Christians believe. And if you're not a Christian though, how do you feel about the idea of the return of the king in triumph, the coming of Jesus Christ on the last day. Paul thinks that the church in Thessalonica has this one sorted, not because they've got the date marked in their calendars, but because they live like Jesus might really actually come back at any moment. There's a whole pile of images in this section. They're all loaded and we could pick them apart, but It'd take a while, and the thrust of it is pretty straightforward, so I'm not going to do that today. I'll skate through it and make sure that we're all on the same page and really just get to some of the ways that it hits. So there's the thief in the night and the labour pains 
stuff. And that just goes to the nature of Jesus' return. And then after that, you have the day, night, light, dark, awake, asleep, sober, drunk stuff. And that drives home the difference, the clear difference between those who are ready for Jesus to return and those who aren't. So what will the moment of Christ's return be like? So, for everyone everywhere, Jesus' return will be sudden and unpredictable. That's the idea of both the thief in the night and the woman going into labour. But there's a little bit more to it. It splits a few ways. For believers, while it will be unpredictable, it will not be unexpected. Believers don't live as though they can't and won't ever fall prey to uh, you know, the thieves. They're not anxious about it either. They just lock their doors at night. Prudent, responsible, not anxious. Unbelievers, though, verse 3, they're enticed by the imperial promise, peace and safety. The famous peace of Rome, the Pax Romana. Just put your faith in Caesar. Switching up the metaphors pretty liberally here, as Paul himself does, they never took the possibility of a thief seriously. And when one actually breaks in, verse 4, they're shocked, threatened. This is not supposed to happen. (laughs) So, readiness. Readiness for the day of the Lord. Unbelievers, they're in the darkness, says Paul. They are asleep, verse 7, as though there's nothing to worry about. Or they are drunk, satisfied with today's pleasures. And these are easy traps. Easy traps to fall into if we trust Caesar for our peace and security, or if we trust the powers of this world, the powers of darkness, those people are not ready for Jesus to return. Believers are in the light. They are sober and alert. They are ready. Clothed, verse 8, in faith, in love, and in hope. There's a great deal more that we could say about all of this. Many of you will have studied this in in some detail in in your Bible studies in this week. But I want to finish with something to say about this to believers, something to say to unbelievers. So, first to believers. Paul is not describing any sort of readiness test. He never distinguishes between believers who are ready for Jesus to return and believers who are not ready for Jesus to return. Faith, love, hope are the markers of a Christian. So brothers and sisters, do you trust that Jesus is Lord? Do you serve others in his name? Do you long for the justice and the restoration that he promises? Then you are ready. You're ready for him to return. And with Paul in verse 11, I say to you, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. To unbelievers, to those who feel like maybe they are, verse 9, destined for the wrath of God, who feel like they're definitely not ready for the second coming. Would you like to be? Because if so, I have good news. 
You can change that destiny. As each of us here have done, one time at one time or another, you can receive life and hope through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the key is right there in the next verse. Verse 10. Jesus Christ died for you. And then he was raised to life. Believe this, and he will call you out of that darkness into his light. And then you will be ready for the return of the king. Let's pray. Our great God, our merciful Father, thank you for sending Jesus into this world uh, to show us a better way and to make it possible for us to be reconciled to you, our creator. We love him, our saviour, our king. We look forward to the day when he returns to remake all things and to gather us all up and to establish his perfect eternal kingdom. We will be there together. We will be there with all your people throughout all time, from all places, from all tongues and tribes and languages and cultures. We will worship him as king and we will serve him in joy and freedom, freedom from sin and evil. Thank you, Father, for the promise of that day and the way that it drives how we live now. Help us to be ready. Help us to encourage one another in that readiness, in that trust of our Lord, in that loving care for others, and in that hope of salvation that is to come. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.